from the ESV translation of the uh, of the Bible. It's very literal in the words it uses. Different than other books like this one, the Message, which is not so literal but very very helpful, and it does help us with book like Romans sometimes uh, as we as we look into it. Romans 2, verse 17. I'll give you half an hour to find it. (laughs) But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will, and approve what is excellent because you're instructed from the law and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself while you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles. For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law, but if you break the law your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you, who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly. Nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. You understand that? (laughs) So, we're looking through this book and we're, it's a letter really, written, written to the infant church in Rome and, uh, Paul, this man who wrote the letter, he'd never been there, but he knew of his existence. Um, when, when I read, when I, over the years as I've read Romans and read this chapter and other chapters, it seems remote. Yeah? It also seems unfriendly. It's also quite difficult to understand. 
But then it wasn't written to me, or it wasn't written to our church here. It was written to this infant church in Rome, which had specific dynamics, if you like, specific problems, specific difficulties, which are not the same difficulties that we have here today as a church. We, we probably have problems here. We, we've got to admit that. We do have problems and we do have difficulties. And if Paul was writing a letter to us, he'd probably address totally different things. But there were things that were specific, you know, to this, this infant church, this first century church. And in a sense, it got me, it got me interested in what the church might look like today in, in Rome or in Italy. And so as my mind went wandering, I thought, well, we were on holiday in Sorrento a few years ago, and we were desperately looking for a church to go to, and um, we found these little labels on the, on the lampposts, you know, talking about evangelical church, you know, just messages about Jesus. And we thought, well, if only we could find this church. Well, we went shopping on sun oh, down the drain on Sunday, and as we, as we walked through the drain right to the end, we eventually found this um, evangelical church, if you like, Pentecostal church there, crowds of people coming out, and um, we actually went in and spoke to them. We got there late, so we didn't actually get to go to part of the service. But we so praised God, you know, for the fact that here were Christians in Sorrento that we could have fellowship and, uh, with and, and talk to, even if it was for a little while. So if we, were, if we went back there again, and Margaret keeps reminding me that her handbag that we got in the drain is breaking which I keep getting reminded about constantly. I think she's trying to say, let's go back to Italy, because I need a new one. But uh, there we are. But it was really good to find a church there. I mean, we wouldn't have felt home in going to a Catholic church or one of the, the churches, the national churches. And so I got a little bit interested in Italy, so as I've been preparing. And, and I came across this. The famous filmmaker Federico Fellini once casually remarked, never heard of this filmmaker before, but he says, I know that I'm a prisoner of 2,000 years of Catholicism. All Italians are. On the basis of the sober facts, it must be conceded that Fellini is right. More than 90% of the 57 million Italians are Catholics. The Waldensian, Methodist, Baptist and Evangelical Lutheran churches have come together in the Federation of Protestant Churches of Italy. Together they amount to 65,000 members. But when the community of Protestant churches in Europe meets for the General Assembly in Florence, it will link up with a partly forgotten history of Protestantism in Italy. I got a little bit interested in Italy. I, saw, I read a little bit about it and I thought, how is it doing? Because Paul was eager to go there and to work amongst the Christians there so that he, they might share a gift. And so that he might explain to them the wonders of Jesus and the, the amazing gospel of Jesus Christ. But the famous, this famous maker said, I know that I'm a prisoner of 2,000 years of Catholicism, but in our passage, which is addressed to the Jew, they were prisoners to more than 2,000 years of Judaism. And that's what we read as we read this passage. He's speaking to people 
who could not release themselves from their history and from their way of life. The wonderful thing about the gospel of Jesus Christ, it not only frees us from being entrenched in historical issues, but it frees us from ways of life that are not helpful. It frees us from habits. It frees us from ourselves, if you like, and gives to us life. So as we look at this passage, I thought, well, let's bring Rome a little bit closer to Herne Bay and see what the church is like today and see what's happening there. Well, the letter was written to these Roman churches and it was made up of Jews and Gentiles, or let's say Jews and non-Jews. It's obviously the Jewish problem here that is Paul's actually trying to deal with. And we might say, why is Paul lashing out at his own people? Why has he given them a hard time? Why is he trying to dissociate himself from them in this spiritual way? Because he knew that they needed deliverance from it. He knew that they wanted to know God's freedom. He knew that he wanted to know what he knew. And the same thing is today. There are many things of life which actually entrench us and imprison us so that we might know what the freedom God has for us. There's another thing here. This was a hotbed for xenophobia, if you like. You say, well, what is that? Well, it's when within a community you have in-groups and out-groups. And it was the Jewish people, the Jewish community, saying, we're the in-group, and you Gentiles are the out-group. And so the Gentile group would say, what are we then? Well, the Jewish people would say about the Gentiles, and especially the Samaritans, they're half-breeds. <laughs> now, if we said that about any other people, community group or whatever, they're half-breeds, we'd be accused, you know, of being whatever, racist, communist or whatever. And so this church, what I'm trying to say is it had specific issues. And that's why Paul was coming against them. You say, well, is Paul, is Paul only hard with them? This book of Romans, written to the Roman church, is moving forwards. And we find Paul at a later stage, I think it's in chapter 9, when he says, I wish I was accursed myself for my people. Here he's writing against them, but here he's loving them. He's holding out his hand to them. He's saying, I do understand the problem, but I just want to remind you, don't let it be like this. And so as I, uh, Steve ably brought to us, and, and I'll just touch on that in a minute, last time he preached from this chapter, he spoke about making right judgment. Now Paul is obviously, as he writes to this church, he's making a judgment about who they are and what their problems are, and he speaks into that, and that is good. But as we come to this, um, you know, as I read through this chapter, I thought to myself, how easy it is to get it wrong. How easy it is to get it wrong. Because this chapter started with, you're not excusable, you who make judgment on other people. And I thought to myself, and as I look at my life, 
And I look at the inconsistency in my life, and I look at the things I've said about other people and things that I've said about other churches. I thought to myself, how easy it is to get it wrong. How easy it is to have wrong ideas, wrong motives, to say wrong things, to make wrong judgment, to be in a place which Paul has said earlier on in this chapter, you're not excusable when you make judgments like that. But I thought to myself, how easy it is. Isn't it easy? Don't we say things and judge them? We see somebody do something and we make a judgment just in a simple, just in a simple way. You know, a person who tells a lie, we call them a liar. And that's not true necessarily. Making wrong judgments. That's how the chapter began. And Steve, he brought us through that. And from that passage, Stephen's message, it, it, it is inexcusable activity of being judge and jury in the issues of antisocial, anti-God, anti-conscience behaviour of others. And when we get caught up in this, the finger point, the pointing points right back at us. In the light of this, there was an appeal to make right judgment. But that, in reality, there is only one who is able to make right judgment at all in the affairs of this people, earth, and that's God himself. There's only one. And we just need to remember that. We know the phrase quite well, and actually Paul passed over it here. You know, it is so easy to make judgments. He or she is a law unto themselves. I suppose people might have said that about me sometimes. He's a law unto himself. But it's quite easily, you see people do something, but they're a law unto themselves. They do what they want to do, when they want to do it, and how they want to do it. So they're a law unto themselves. As we read through this chapter, and earlier, what Steve brought to us, we find every person has violated his own conscience as every person has violated the written law, the revelation of God. The moral compass is passively present and actively shouting back at us as we live our lives out in this world. God has his work within every person. Suppression of truth, he mentioned in chapter 1, this tells us that God has his work in everybody because truth is actually suppressed. And then Paul talks about our conscience. And he talks about expression of justice, even if only self-measured. So God has his work within every person. And in a minute I want to come on to what Paul is saying here about the conscience and what the Bible talks about the conscience because Paul says, and he said, you may not have the written law of God to tell you of what is right and wrong, but you do have your conscience. The Gentile who doesn't have the law of God has something within him, as every person does, Jew and Gentile, the conscience which God has given each one of us. It's something which is actually alive to something beyond ourselves. It's not only myself. It's something which is alive within me. So it's easy to get it wrong. 
I heard a little story about um, two, two, two people, they were neighbours, and uh, if you like, they wanted to order something from Amazon. And one of them ordered a birdhouse, and the other one ordered a boat. And uh, their items, they arrived and they unpacked them, and uh, they, they were build-yourself kits. And so, uh, as they started to assemble the, the chap with, uh, with his kit, he started to assemble his, put A to B, and put the screw in there and the nail in there. And as it came together, and he thought to myself, well, oh, this is a strange birdhouse. And so he went on through the instructions, and he said, when you have finished putting it together, put it in a tree. So that was fine. So he put his item in the tree. And uh, a chap came along and he said to him, what are you doing with a boat in a tree? He said, well, the instructions say, put the boat in the tree. And another neighbour came along and he said, what have you done that? Where have you got a boat in the tree from? He said, well, he said, my friend has just said to me, uh, what's your boat doing in a tree? <laughs> he says, that's nothing. You want to see the chap who's trying to sail his birdhouse in the lake. How easy it is to get things wrong. And if in some well, you know what it's like with instructions, can't you? You can go so far with instructions, and you find you've got a wrong piece or a piece missing, and that's what happens. But I thought to myself, as Paul was speaking to these people, how easy, how easy it is to get it wrong. And I thought to myself, then we need something outside of us that's going to help us in our mess. We need something to help us if we get it all wrong. And the amazing thing is that, uh, as Jenny has reminded us this morning, and as, as Adrian read to us from that, something we need to look at here is the character of God. Because Paul, as he wrote this letter, he said, you may get it absolutely wrong, and in all that you're doing, you're forgetting one thing, that the patience and the love and the understanding of God leads us to the place where we can find help. It's the character of God that does this for us. How easy to get it wrong. Ideas, motives, attitudes, judgment... But it actually worsens it, you know, when we're, we're communicating to other people right and wrong. And that's the thing we read at the end of our passage this morning. He said, your teachers, your leaders, and you're showing people what's wrong. You're not giving the right impression. You're demonstrating, you're just demonstrating God as a different person than what he is. You're communicating the wrong idea about God. In uh, some areas of Christian circles, you may hear this phrase, the visible church. And so as I thought to myself about the Jews communicating the right, wrong idea about God, I thought to myself, what about us as a beacon? How do we become visible 
in our community? Are we conveying the right idea about God? Are we saying the right things about God and what he requires? And as I read through this passage, I thought to myself, yeah, how easy it is to get the wrong idea of God. But it was Paul who reminded them. He reminded them, he said, God is patient. God is understanding. We may wander off the path, but he loves us and he wants to bring us back. He wants to give to us life and understanding. He wants to give us hope and peace and joy. His heart is full. His arm is outstretched, which is a biblical phrase. He's not just remote. He's part of this world who holds his hand and his heart out to a world that's got it all wrong. How easy it is to get it wrong. The three things I just want to look at, first of all, the first is contempt for the true nature and character of God. Because that's where the Jewish nation was and largely is today. Contempt for the true character of God. Sometimes we act in that way that we don't actually give the right idea of God and I've done that so often by the way I've been hypocritical and judging but also in the way of the things I say and the things I do that people might be confused at my life. I think each of us would sort of hold our hand up to that and say, well, am I the person that I say I am? Do I actually do the things in the way that I express them that I try and get across to other people? I'm better than I am, if you like. Inconsistency there. And so... This first thing, contempt for the true nature and the character of God. Paul has been sharing his revelation of the character of God. In, in verse 2 it says, Whereas the, ju the judgments we make are defective to our own detriment, God's judgment is fair, impartial, just, and etc. So ours is defective, his is pure. So it's something we can rely on. When God makes a judgment about something, it's just and it's true. And I'm so glad that he, through Jesus, will be the one who judges all things in the end. He is not only fair, impartial and just, but intentionally shows an immensely proactive way, kindness tolerance and patience for the prodigals to return. We, we had um, a, a video some time ago which was shown by Tim Keller and it related to the story of uh, the prodigal son which in actual fact the outcome of his story was telling us that both the sons of this Jewish man, if you like, were both prodigals. One wandered up, one stayed at home and um, it, the outcome of his story and what he was saying was that both these sons were prodigals. They were afar from God. And in that story, the father is outstanding in the way that he receives his son back. And he's outstanding in the way that he deals with his elder son. 
And he says some amazing things to him. He said, he said, I've always been here for you. He said, all that I have is yours. And the son said, I've served you all these years and you've never given me a party. You've never given me a party. So it's contempt for the true character of God which is brought out in that story which Jesus told. So God is not only genuine, fair, reasonable and just. He's actually proactive in his kindness, tolerance and patience. He is able to give us more than we could ever think. In verse 7, God was a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. In verse 7 we can read, read these words. To those who by patience in well-doing seek glory and honour and immortality, he will give eternal life. And that's not in our passage this morning. But it's to remind that Paul is actually exposing the character of God so that we might know him who truly is. God is a rewarder. We find in another letter in the Bible, God is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. So he's not a negative God, he's a positive God, proactive in his kindness and all that he does for us. He is so much more. So the door is open, the way is clear, the court is in session, if this is to do with judgment. The court is in session 24-7 for our case to be heard. This court, which God sits in judgment, is 100% fair, 100% genuine, 100% reasonable, 100% just. Jesus has both underwritten the full amount of each claim and spoken the result you wanted to hear, not guilty, my Lord. As we stand in this eternal court of God, if you like, the true God, the character of God who has shown love to us becomes very clear that through Jesus we might know forgiveness. And in the context of this letter, that because of Jesus' righteousness, which he imputed to us when we receive him, we are righteous, known and seen without sin whatsoever. And that's so amazing, isn't it? God is proactive in his character towards us. Not guilty, free, forgiven, no charge. Do you actually live in the good of that? So when it's easy to get it wrong, where do I go? What do I do? If our conscience tells us or is niggling away at us, very often I say things to someone and my, I go away and I said, I shouldn't have said that. My conscience is at work within me. And then maybe you, you look back at a few years back in the past and you say, I wished I hadn't done that. That's conscience at work, isn't it? Our conscience is at work, this God-given thing that's within us. We do things, we say things. You know, we wish we hadn't done them, so easy to get wrong. But yet this court we come to, we find freedom, we find forgiveness and no charge. Next thing I'm going to look at is consistency in word and action. 
This is what Paul was saying to his fellow Jews. He said, what you do and what you say, they're not consistent. You say one thing and you do another. So as this reading this morning, this whole chapter shouts to us moralism and hypocrisy. You know, I'm right, you're wrong. Look at me, if you like. Don't take any notice of them. It shouts that as we look at it. But Paul is saying, you know, you're not consistent in your words and in your actions. Don't do as I do, do as I say. is quite a common phrase, isn't it? Don't do as I do, do as I say. There's a story, a little story about um, a father who saw his son with a, a brand new pencil. And so the father said to his little boy, he said, Oh, son, where did you get that new pencil from? He said, I got it from school. He said, you shouldn't take pencil from school. Here, have this one. I got it from work. (laughs) It's just a little thing, isn't it? Don't do as I do, do as I say. But it was an inconsistency. But this is the thing which marks us, if you like, in our lives very often. And when I talk about the visible church, and when we talk about our witness and testimony, we need to look at this and say, does our life, is our li- are our lives consistent, if you like, the things we do and the things we say? When Jesus rebuked the religious leaders of his day, his contention was that their actions were out of sync with the things that they said or spoke, so much so He said, don't do the things that they said. You you don't have to do them. He said, they might say them, they might do them, but in actual fact, they're hypocrites because a lot of things they say, they don't do. In actual fact, Jesus, outrageous, as he looked at their lives and he said, said this is the the authorised version, if you like, don't they bind burdens grievous to be borne? In other words, they put loads on people that they can't bear. And I trust within our context of our church that none of us as leaders or elders or preachers put things on people that they can't bear. Because in actual fact, sometimes we're just as guilty as anybody. But these were leaders. These were religious leaders. They had the... People looked up to them. And so they were supposed to be modelled. And Jesus said, no, don't look at them because they're not really models of what God really requires. So consistency in word and action. Jesus couldn't commend their behaviour. They were extreme in their worthless rules. They were self-promoting, unable to relate to the poor and those in spiritual need. They were shutting up the kingdom of God, making it selective rather than freely available. That's how Jesus saw his own people, his own community of that day. But thank God he came to bring life. He came to give life. He came to speak into that situation and demonstrate something totally different. This is the man we've been singing about this morning, the glory of this man, Jesus. The one who's so wonderful and amazing. And that's why I love first verse of Acts. Because Luke said, In my former book, I wrote about all that Jesus began 
both to do and to teach. And you will always find me harping on about these. You're often, because I keep coming to because I think that's such an amazing verse. Because the things that Jesus said and the things that he did were in perfect harmony. There was no inconsistency at all between the things that he said and the things that he did. That's what marked him out as different. That's why we could say about Jesus, he was holy. And that's why we could say about Jesus, he wasn't a hypocrite. Because what he said and what he did were in harmony. Harmony is actually when a chord is put, a musical chord is put together, and it doesn't grate, but it makes a good sound. Not only is it harmony, but it's symphony. Because it's like an orchestra declaring the wonder works of God. And Jesus' life was like a symphony with the things he said and the things he did. Because it spoke volumes into the heavenly. And it was God who said, this is my son in whom I find the immense greatest pleasure and all heaven is musically demonstrating your power, your greatness, your amazingness. The holy son of God. The majesty between the things he said and the things that he did. And I make a lot of that because it's those things which actually, in which we fail. He was the holy son of God. So amazing, so wonderful. And last week we were just singing that amazing song majesty majesty worship his majesty unto jesus be glory honor and praise and that's where it belongs because he was outstanding he stood alone in that not only was it a symphony and a harmony but lastly his life was a testimony as a young man growing up, I was keen about church. I was dedicated to it. I wanted to be at all the meetings and all the services. I wanted to do all the right things. But then I noticed that really my activity or my life seemed different in church than it did at home. And it was the inconsistency and God spoke to me about your life needs to be the same at home was what it does amongst the people of God. It's like the preacher who used to be, he was a good orator, he could get a message across, he could speak to his church family, but when he went home, he raped his daughter. Inconsistency. And that's probably of the worst kind you could imagine. But the man who stands up and preaches and then goes home and calls his wife a bitch is inconsistent. And the wife who does her serving in the church and goes home and calls her husband pathetic is inconsistent. And it's these inconsistencies, you know, that we fail so very often in. But with Jesus, never. What he said and what he did. Symphony, harmony 
and testimony. And it's that that will speak to people we come across. The last thing, and quickly, our conscience. What shall I do with my conscience? What shall I do with it? God has given me a conscience. What can I do? It's a troublemaker. It can trouble us for years and years and years and years and years. You know, in Hebrews, it talks about the sacrifice that Jesus made and the sacrifices that Jews never made years and year after year after year after year. And he says those sacrifices could never take away sin. They could never give the guilty conscience peace. They could never do that. They might felt all right to come, but you know, with Jesus, if we want to have a pure and an untroubled conscience, and to know his peace and joy within. It is only Jesus that can deal with that. Because if we give, we spoke in that passage about the kindness of God leads us to repentance. Let it lead us there. Because if we give our sin to him, we give our failings to him, we have that peace. Because what Jesus did can give us the purest conscience we could ever have. My peace I give unto you, said Jesus. Not as the world gives, give I unto you. So if anything troubles you this morning in the past or the present or the future, did you know your conscience be clear? You know God can deal with it? He can take it away. Just to bring it to the cross. Bring it where we can find that hope and peace and joy. Our, tr- our, tr- our conscience may trouble us, and it may be because of something we've done. And that's quite normal, to be troubled in our conscience. But there's one other thing I need to mention before we go. Because sometimes we can have not really done anything, and yet our conscience still troubles us. And the Bible talks about Satan's work on the children of God, and it talks to us that he's a, an accuser. This is a spiritual thing which happens regularly he is an accuser of the brethren or the brothers or the christians or the people of god he accuses them day and night before god he also accuses us we find accusation at work in our lives which we can't deal with and just to close with if that's happening to us and we can't put our finger on it and we find accused we feel accused or our conscience seems troubled in some way just remind him to tell him to go in Jesus' name. Tell him to go. And also tell him, remind him of what happens because Jesus died a death. That Jesus destroyed him that had the power of death, that is the devil. And he has committed him to the lake of fire in the future, which burns for eternity. God has dealt with him. So as we close... I'm just going to pray. So we just close with this. You know, there's, the courtroom is open. God's courtroom is open. Whilst we get it wrong, whilst we might be troubled, whilst we might not understand at all what's going on, the courtroom's open today. Your case can be heard before God. And Jesus, who is the one, can set us free 
and to give to us that freedom and can state over our lives, not guilty, not guilty, my Lord. Thank you, Jesus, for all that you've done for us. Help us to be able to worship and praise you, to thank you for all that you are and all that you've done. And we would come again to that amazing throne of your grace. Say, Lord, as we don't deserve it, you have shown us that you love us so much that you've given us everything and declared your amazing character towards us. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Father. So if you want prayer and this and find your conscience in need, just seek out one of us on the ministry team and we will pray with you.